Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. The first uh, six verses of Hebrews 8 presents Jesus as the great mediator, that great priest, the one who uh, connects us, brings us to God. In fact, really, since chapter 5, if you recall, we have been uh, delving into these deep truths about our Lord Jesus Christ that portrays him as our priest. And you remember back in chapter 5, it says that those who were listening had become dull in their hearing. And for that reason, there was this excursus that the author had to take to uh, explain to them why it is that they had gone backwards instead of forwards in their walk. And it was namely because they just become dull in hearing the word of God. And so before he could dive into the deep truths of who Jesus is, he needed to stop and remind them of their need to get up to speed, to get serious, to grow up. And so what we have before us is a continued uh, plunge into the depths of who Christ is. It's deep, it's profound, and I would challenge you to listen closely to the Word of God, uh, as you should at all times the Word of God goes forth, but especially as we study something that has caused at least a certain amount of confusion for people when we're talking about the old and the new. It's often dismissed out of hand automatically. The old is, is gone and the new has come and the focus is on one as opposed to the other. For us to understand a text that, like we have before us, we have to clearly see the plan that God has placed by covenant, by his divine commitment, by this one overarching plan that God has, his covenant. So we'll spend significant time today considering what is a covenant and who is the Christ of that covenant. Hear God's word, Hebrews 8, 6 through 13. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I had made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and teach one, uh, teach one his brother, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities." And I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let us pray. Father, these are certainly deep and profound truths revealed to us in your word. And I pray, Lord, that we would be keen to listen closely to what you have for us from this text. I pray, Lord, that you would also correct our thinking where it needs correcting. I pray, Lord, that you would enhance our vision for what you would have us do as a result of these truths. And Lord, ultimately and always, we pray that the Lord Jesus Christ would receive the glory 
pray in his name. Amen. Now, the word covenant itself is a concept, uh, a term that is used consistently throughout the scriptures. In fact, even a beginning uh, student of the word of God would recognize the term covenant. And I think we even today in the modern church use the word covenant often. I'm not so sure we really know what it means, but I think we use it often because we know it's there in the scriptures. And if you're in our church, you hear covenantal language often. It's really the bedrock or the marrow in some ways of what we teach, God's covenants, covenant theology, you'll hear the term. But I think often people misunderstand really what is being communicated. And for this reason, I think it's important as we look at these verses today to consider really at length what it is, uh, what the covenant is, what covenants are, how it describes for us God's dealing with himself and with us. Now, let me just ask you as a test to see how your thinking is on covenant. You will hear oftentimes people referring to the old as obsolete or gone now that Christ has come. You'll hear the Old Testament stands for law and the New Testament stands for grace. Wrong. Totally wrong. Unfortunately, when the Bible was translated into English, we kept this uh, this designation of Old Testament, New Testament. And in our minds, whenever Jesus or one of the apostles speaks of the old having passed away, we think Old Testament equals old. And we just automatically think it's, it's, it's really history for us to see what happened. Uh, but the New Testament, we're under grace now. And we think that Old Covenant equals Old Testament. And therefore, that which is done away with is the Old Testament, at least as far as its particular application to us. I would submit to you that many in our day, especially in the American Evangelical Church, think that. That's what is meant by Old Covenant, Old Testament. And so only that which comes after Christ is applicable for us, the church. When Jesus is said to have mediated a better covenant, does this mean that the Old Testament is somehow made obsolete? Is that what we're speaking of? Or what component of the covenantal language of the Old Testament is done away with? when Jesus says he mediates a better covenant. I would like to submit to you several, four to be exact, interpretive keys needed for understanding the covenantal language of the Bible. I think these keys will help you with whatever passage you come across, whether it be in the Old or New Testament. And let me stress, these are interpretive keys that are derived from Scripture. Uh, you, we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. The rules for interpretation come from the Bible them, itself. Uh, I won't have time to go exhaustively into every verse that backs up these interpretive keys, but I'll mention a few just so you can see and start down that road of better understanding what a covenant is and how it is that Jesus is the Christ of the covenant and how that all makes a huge difference in how you view the scripture and I would submit how you live. First, key important interpretive key for understanding the covenantal language of the Bible is this. A covenant is a solemn bond with attendant blessings and curses. A solemn bond with attendant blessings and curses. When the scripture was first written, the first book being written, uh, either Job or Genesis, the point being is it was written around the time, most likely, uh, at least Job we don't know as much about, but we know that Genesis through De Deuteronomy were written probably around 1445 B.C. by Moses. He wrote them most likely in the wilderness or at some period during his ministry, and he then captures the previous uh, hundreds of years of revelation before his time. Abraham lived in uh, around 2000, 2000 BC. And so now Moses captures all that by the divine protection of the Holy Spirit, pens those books, 
all the events that happen, and he does so in the year 1445. Why is this significant? Well, at that time, and for the years that had preceded it, a covenant was the main way people did contracts. It would have been as similar as you filling out or signing a credit card slip or a debit card slip. We do that without even thinking. We just scribble our name on it. This is so common. That's how we do contracts. It's a contract we're signing. And that's the same thing for covenant. It was commonplace. That was consistently the way two parties would make an agreement in antiquity. And that's outside of Israel. That's uh, pagan nations did this. They would uh, slaughter an animal or they would have some way to describe the curses that would come if we broke our end of the covenant, our end of the contract. So a covenant is the language that God uses to describe his particular activity within the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and with us. He covenants among among himself, meaning the Godhead, and also with man. And this is essential for understanding covenantal language. He uses this language because this is the time period in which the scripture comes to us. So even if the word itself, covenant, is not explicitly written, you'll see the terms of the covenant, that is God bonding himself to something committing himself to something. It's covenantal in its concept as well. So that's the first interpretive key to understand covenantal language in the Bible. Secondly, Scripture reveals to us an eternal covenant. We call it the covenant of redemption. That covenant, that agreement, that bond between God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit underlies all of God's redemptive activities in the Scriptures. The covenant of redemption is crucial to us understanding what is being told in the scriptures. This covenant is between members of the Trinity. This does not have direct reference to us yet. This is an agreement between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In particular, an agreement between the Father and the Son that the Son would redeem a people for himself and that this would bring glory to God in doing it. That's the covenant of redemption. In fact, if you were going to think of any division whatsoever of Scripture, you would say the covenant of redemption, but not so much divided then, but begetting then the covenant of grace. But the covenant of redemption, otherwise known as God's eternal decree, his election, that happened before the foundation of the earth. And Scripture only gives us brief insights because our minds can only handle so much of what happened in eternity, but it's clearly there for us. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. You don't have to turn there. You can note it, but listen closely to the words, and we get a glimpse at this eternal counsel, if you will. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world. So this is a transaction that happened before the foundation of the world. We call it the covenant of redemption, the agreement on the part of the Son to redeem a people. But look what else it says in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. Why? According to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. You see, the reason why God does this thing is according to the pleasure of his own will and for his glory. So the covenant of redemption is about God's glory, not my salvation as such. Praise God, that's one of the benefits of it or one of the things that comes forth from it. But the real purpose and the reason why it's so secure is that it's an agreement between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and it will happen. That's the covenant of redemption revealed at least in a small way in Ephesians 1. But also in John 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me, Jesus says, will come to me. 
and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So this implies that God gives the Son people who will come to him. John 10, verses 27 through 29. My sheep, Jesus says, Here's my vo- hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. That is who? His sheep. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Key insight, verse 29 of John 10. My Father, who has given them to me, and that's in the past tense, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of, my, out of the Father's hand. So an insight there in time and space, talking with people, an insight to the eternal mind of God, the covenant of redemption, the agreement to send the Son to redeem the people God had given him. In John 17, when, God is, when Jesus is praying for the church, the disciples in particular, and then the church in a wider sense, those who would come after, he says in John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. Small insights, but key insights, so that we might understand what is working itself out in the scriptures. The covenant of redemption working itself out in the scriptures. Well, Tony, you're pushing it because there's no covenant listed there. Ah, but in Hebrews 13, which we'll come to in some weeks, maybe months, now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Do you see that? The blood of the eternal covenant. What was determined in the, the covenant of redemption? That Jesus would shed his blood for a people. So the blood of the eternal covenant, that is what Hebrews 13 refers to. May it equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. So the eternal covenant of redemption underlies all of what is displayed for us in the redemptive activities of God in the scriptures. Maybe just a few verses key on that, but everything flows out from it leading us to the third interpretive principle that helps us understand covenantal language. As a result of the covenant of redemption, there is a covenant made unilaterally between God and his people, the covenant of grace. Louis Burkhoff said it well, the covenant of redemption is the eternal basis for the covenant of grace. That is, if God is going to redeem a people by the blood of his Son, those people are going to receive grace, which is truly only of God because no one merits it. That's truly grace. The covenant of grace is an agreement of God the Father to save a people by sending a son in the actual doing of it, drawing those people into a relationship with him, which is still happening today. The covenant of redemption was satisfied at the cross, but the covenant of grace continues on. The Trinity agrees to redeem. Then the actual carrying out is God making a covenant with us. And what is so intriguing about this covenant with us, as you well know, is that we don't uphold our end. There still has to be curses paid for, though. And so the Father, in in making this covenant with his people, realizes that he will have to take upon himself those curses and then gives his son. So the covenant of redemption is between the Trinity. The covenant of grace is between God and his people, and it's paid for by Christ. That's the fourth interpretive principle. Jesus is the Christ given to satisfy the terms of redemption and grace. Very simply, but very profoundly, 
it would cost something to redeem man. God would have to do the saving. And even though a covenant is between two parties in this case, because the one party could not uphold its end, God would have to provide for it still. Why would he do this? For the glory of his grace. That's why he would do that. Jesus is the Christ of the covenant. The covenant of redemption begets the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is revealed by the scriptures. And in the individual human life that you represent, as God breathes new life into you and draws you into union with the Christ of the covenant, that's your personal relationship with Christ. It's huge out here in the eternal mind of God in that it comes down to simply you in the Lord Jesus and fits that whole span in between. The banner is the covenant of grace. That's the unifying theme of all of Scripture. How do the different covenants revealed in Scripture relate with one another then? You may be familiar with all the different times, especially in the Old Testament, the term covenant is used with different individuals. I would submit to you that the way they relate is this, and I tried to picture this for you on a flow chart, if you will, uh, that's on your uh, outline. The covenant of redemption in eternity past happens. Forth from it comes the covenant of grace. I would put the covenant of grace as an umbrella. Then every other covenantal agreement that happens in the Old Testament and into the New Testament with the New Covenant is under that umbrella. And they all work to better accent what it is that God is doing for his own glory and saving a people for himself. So consider it this way. The covenant of grace is uh, the covenant of redemption come into time and space. Where do we read it first? Genesis 3, verse 15. Immediately after man falls, and it becomes clear that man will not be able to have fellowship with God of his own merit. Genesis 3.15, the gospel in its beginning forms comes to us. I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to Satan, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. So we have the proto-gospel. We have the covenant of grace, how God will save a people for himself, how he will fulfill this covenant in its very seed form, but its clear form nonetheless in this promise of grace already in Genesis 3, verse 15. Well, what does Noah's covenant have to do with it? Didn't he make a covenant with Noah promising not uh, to send a flood again in like manner? Well, remember the whole story. What happens? God promises in Genesis 3, 15 that he would send a seed, the seed of the woman, to crush the head of the serpent. Now that seed is threatened. It is threatened with wickedness and all matter of vileness. And so God says, I'm sending a flood, but I will preserve a family because I promised to send a seed who will crush the head of the serpent. So he preserves one family, sending a message to Satan and to people that my plan will not be thwarted, my seed will come forward. And the Noahic covenant is formed. But the Noahic covenant, my brothers and sisters, is the covenant of grace. Continuing to Abraham's time, a covenant we are also familiar with, I hope, in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, God makes a covenant with this man, and there we have revealed for us how God would bring forth his revelation through a people who he would give his word to. And Messiah would come. The Christ of the covenant would come forth from this people. And so he makes a covenant with Abraham. Behold, my covenant is with you in Genesis 17, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Never was it intended for Abraham's ethnic or biological children to be the people of God. They were going to be the beginning vehicle in which the people of God would be hosted. But it would be many nations. It would start narrow with Abraham and his children and work its way out into the nations. That's the essence of the Abrahamic covenant. 
in my brothers and sisters, the Abrahamic covenant is the covenant of grace. Then we come to the time of Moses. Oh no, the law. Brothers and sisters, the Mosaic covenant is the covenant of grace. The law consisted of many things. In fact, when you consider Moses comes out, they have already people that make a nation, but they require law and they require land to dwell in. And God is about to, in miraculous form, deliver them into this. And he has an ultimate plan of how he will make all nations come to Christ. But he's doing it now starting narrowly, but now defining it more by this covenant on Mount Sinai. And there are several ways in which we can look at what was given to Moses. First, he's given that timeless reflection of God's righteousness called the Ten Commandments. Do you read anywhere, anywhere in the Bible where that's ever taken back? No, that's the essential, timeless truth, the reflection of God's eternal character there. And then also is given a set of civil laws in which they are able to uphold the Ten Commandments by following these laws. You may say, well, they're a little strange for us today. Well, the particulars would be applied exactly the way they're given today. However, it would still be wise for us to look at our civil laws and consider how it is that they can help us uphold the eternal law. Then there's another aspect, and the aspect that is most often, nine out of ten times referred to by the New Testament writers and in Hebrews, the component of the law, the old covenant that is usually referred to, is in that third component that is given at Sinai, the Levitical, liturgical, ceremonial, sacrificial system of the Levites. You remember where we've been in Hebrews. It's all been about that Levitical system, that sacrificial system, that ceremonial system. That's what is done away with. But at its time, it had its purpose. It showed them how serious sin was, how blood is the only thing that could atone. And you'd have to keep doing this with bulls and goats and all this liturgy and this special tent and this temple and these offerings daily, weekly, monthly, never-ending, always standing to do it. It served its purpose well. But when Christ had come, that part of the covenant was no longer needed. When we look at the Mosaic covenant, please see it for what it is, the covenant of grace. Then there's a covenant made with David. How is this any different? It's still more revelation about the same thing, the covenant of grace. He says to David in 2 Samuel 7, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. As God instructs David to begin construction on the temple, he commits to keeping a king on the throne in the line of David. Of course, they fail miserably throughout this, and God disciplines a nation, but he ultimately fulfills by putting Christ, the king of the covenant, on the throne forever, fulfilling the Davidic covenant, our king, our priest, our prophet. The Davidic covenant, my brothers and sisters, is the covenant of grace. And towards the end, in the most oppressing days of Israel's history, when they're about to be taken captive for a final time, Jeremiah the prophet looks out at the land and is able, through his tears, to forecast by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit a day that would come where the Christ of the covenant would come and that the living of the covenant people would change because of the lordship and the sovereign power of God even on the hearts of people who are wayward. In fact, if you look at Hebrews 8 where we have uh, the text before us, this extensive quote that I've placed in italics for you is actually from Jeremiah 31. Similar words come in Ezekiel 31. But listen, look at these words in Hebrews, keeping in mind they're written in the time of Jeremiah. 
Not a time to be optimistic necessarily, except for the promise of God. The new covenant forecasted. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. When was the new covenant established? This is the new covenant in my blood. That's when it was established. That's when it began. At the cross foretold of in the Lord's Supper. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of, uh, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach. What does this mean? Each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. This forecast today, when there will be a, a, a portion, that, especially that which they were so unfaithful in, that would be done away with and fulfilled by Messiah, and then slowly but surely, according to his providential plan, he starts drawing people to himself. And there would come a day, eventually, and we're not at that day yet, but there will come a day when you don't have to say to your neighbor, know the Lord. Because they will know the Lord. Because of his presence on earth, particularly his presence, as exemplified by the people that he has redeemed. Then the new covenant actually arrives, if you will. As Jesus comes, the covenant of grace realized. The covenant of grace ratified on the cross when he died. At the Last Supper, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood, meaning when he shed his blood, the ratification of the covenant would take place and it would do away with all that Levitical liturgy and worship and ceremony and sacrifice. And now, the once for all sacrifice had been made. No longer would there be the Levitical priesthood mediated by Moses. There would now be the Melchizedekian priesthood. Sacrifice is Jesus. And it's done once for all as Christ the mediator, the priest of that fulfilled covenant. Oftentimes using the word new may be what's difficult, but the word new has a range of meaning in this text as it does every time it's listed. It's really better or fulfilled or realized covenant. It's come to its fruition. The covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace come together as Christ lifts the bread and the cup. And ultimately, ultimately, we look forward to the final consummation. We are now living in Christ's inaugurated kingdom. And he is slowly but surely bringing people to himself. He's seated at the right hand of God, according to Scripture, where all things will be made subject to him. Now, instead of looking around, by the way, as a way of practical application, saying it doesn't look that way, well, what are you doing about it? I mean, the church lives like the church. Do you not believe that God will give victory to the church? And even if you don't see that as the longest term uh, interpretation of Scripture, don't you believe that if Redeemer right now concentrated on covenant faithfulness, responding to what God has done to us in grace, don't you believe right now that he could make this place a beacon of light here and could change this area? I hope you believe that much. I believe it's a lot wider than that, but at least believe that much. That's new covenant living. That's the beginning of the consummation that will bring all glory to God. So the covenant of redemption has been fulfilled. And the covenant of grace is now in the process of being fulfilled. Now, with that understanding, let's look at the text and understand what it is, 
what is being communicated by this term covenant. Look at verse 6. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better. Now, what is this referring to? Remember back to the beginning of chapter 8, chapter 7, chapter 6? The priestly ministry, the Levitical ministry that Jesus supersedes, that he is better than. That's what he overcomes. Verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Clearly, that component of the first covenant was at fault in that man was involved with it. People had to make sacrifices for themselves. It was, by nature, going to be obsolete at some point when the perfect one came. So what covenants are being compared? Particularly, the Mosaic covenant, as it relates to the sacrificial system, is what the Hebrew mind would clearly understand Jesus is better than. Not the whole Old Testament. Not the Ten Commandments or or other aspects of Revelation that are given to us. It's that component, that ceremonial, sacrificial component that is now fulfilled in Jesus. This is what would have clearly been understood by those who first heard. In fact, how do we know we're talking about just the Mosaic component of uh, the overall activities of God in the Old Testament? Look at verse 9. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's a particular reference to Sinai. There was, of course, the Abrahamic covenant that came before. Uh, This is not done away with in some way, but rather just simply this component uh, that we have made clear to us by the context here, the Levitical priesthood, the system of sacrifices, and the mediatorial role of human beings. Now being done away with is Jesus, our priest, takes their place and supersedes them. The point is, Christ fulfills the sacrificial portion of the Mosaic era, which the Hebrew readers were caught up in. The writer is saying Christ does away with this old system, and the one he gives is far superior. Those are the covenants being compared. That's what it means by old. What use did the old covenant have then? As I mentioned earlier, the old covenant had great use. The old covenant showed us how serious sin was. And just by having to constantly offer sacrifices, no one could gather that they could save themselves. So it's all about grace that God would point to them consistently and constantly to the Redeemer he would send. So the Old Covenant has great use, but it's no longer necessary, at least that portion, the sacrificial portion, any longer. And God puts an exclamation point on this in verse 13 of our text in Hebrews 8. And what is becoming obsolete, because slowly but surely, They're turning over now from the sacrificial system to synagogues becoming churches. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Please notice in verse 13, that's impending uh, imminent language. And this is a clear reference to the ending of the sacrificial system that would uh, happen in 70 AD, just 20 years or so, maybe even less after the time this book was written, where the Romans came in and sacked Jerusalem and utterly destroyed the temple, making it no more possible for them to do sacrifices. It's becoming old, he's saying to the people. Christ is the better way. And in just a short time, maybe in your life, it's all going to be vanished, the sacrificial system. And it was, and it still is. There's no temple standing any longer. This was not only the end of the sacrificial system. This was the end of an era. This was the end of God's particular dealing with one nation. It's made wide now to the Gentiles, and that is how he continues to work and will continue to work until the end of the age. How is the new covenant much more excellent? Very simply, its promises are better because the promise is that you could come into the very presence of Christ. 
No mediator needed. No man, no human mediator needed. You have Jesus. So now, unlike the old days where you had to stand outside the Holy of Holies, uh, he mediates a better covenant where he takes you by the hand into the throne room of his own father because you're in union with him. That's the better promise. That's the better access, unfettered access to our God begets blessings upon blessings upon blessings. Finally, the question I'd like to ask and answer, how are we to be about new covenant living then? What does this mean practically, all of this? Well, first of all, properly understanding the covenantal nature of God's dealing with us gives us back our Bibles. It's not an Old Testament and a New Testament. It's all the Bible. We don't just have a a fourth of it. We have it all in, in our disposal, and it's all about your history. Moses' history is your history. Abraham's is yours. The failures as well as the successes are all yours in that it's God's grace working through his people. One people of God under the covenant of grace. It brings back a unity to the Bible. And it's all under grace. No divisions between law and gospel. It's all grace. Law becomes the way we live out God's grace in our lives. Secondly, properly understanding the covenantal nature of God's dealing with us helps us to understand the importance of the covenantal signs. These are not just optionals, my dear brothers and sisters. These signs have been given to us to keep until he comes again. And they're given with power, and they're given with purpose, and they're given with a constant reflection upon who Christ is and what he has done as the mediator of the covenant, the Christ of the covenant. And applying that sign to us and our children is no empty thing. It's a covenant sign. Think of what the covenant is. Thirdly, properly understanding the covenantal nature of God's dealing with us helps us to discern end times errors when we see and hear them. And we are overwhelmed with this today. Simply put, not to go too far down this road, any teaching of the end times that emphasizes that God somehow now still owes something to ethnic Israel is in error. He does not. The destruction of Jerusalem was the end of the ethnic focus on Israel as the people of God. Now, I believe Romans 11 speaks of some revival that God may bring about in the end of the age that will involve particular people or members of that nation. But this is not about them anymore. It never really was. It's about God's covenant of grace in a people, and they are defined by their relationship with Christ and that alone. We see this when we understand one covenant of grace overarching all of redemptive history. Fourthly, properly understanding the covenantal nature of God's dealing with us places the glory where it belongs, God. It's all about the glory of the Godhead for the plan of redemption and the execution of it. No glory belongs to man. All of it to God. If that, makes you, if that tweaks you a bit, then I ask you to consider repentance because it's God's glory that it's is about. No glory belongs to man. Certainly man can take no credit for the covenant of redemption. The covenant of grace is just that, grace. And brothers and sisters, where we fit in, and it's so wonderful that we do fit in, is this token of love passed between the Father and the Son. And our security is not in our decision or what we profess. Our security is in the commitment God has with God the Son. Do you think God the Father would ever leave his Son or the Son his Father? That's the surety that you have in your own salvation. For it's for God's glory. And finally, properly understanding the covenantal nature of God's dealing with us gives us the right motivation for pursuing holiness. 
We don't follow God's law in order to earn our standing with him. Our covenant-keeping Christ has lived the law for us perfectly. Now we can reflect God's glory, which is evidenced by the law, in our living. We're saved by God's grace, and now we live according to his precepts, showing we're saved. We strive after obedience to show forth the excellencies of our Savior and our God. God's covenantal dealing with all of us is grace, and all the benefits are secured for us by Christ. Our lives are then lived as one huge thank you. And I would submit to you that John Newton, the great hymn writer, understood this concept of grace when he wrote Amazing Grace. It's misused today. He understood what grace meant, and I can prove this to you. The hymn we read by John Newton, his lesser known hymn, if you will, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, in the second verse, he says, See the streams of living waters springing from eternal love. Well supply sons and daughters, and all fear of want remove. Who can faint while such a river ever flows their thirst assuage? Grace, which like the Lord, the giver, never fails from age to age. Christ, Jesus, is the Christ of the covenant. That's why he's your Savior. Let us pray. Lord, you are a covenant-keeping God. You never fail. Lord, I pray that we would be renewed in our spirits, secured by your love, to go forth and live different lives, to be the beacon that you would have us to be in this land, in this world. And I pray, Lord, that this would continue to give you the glory. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare for communion... Let's turn to 332 as the elders come forward. We'll stand and sing verse 1 and verse 2 of Come, Holy Spirit, Heavenly Dove.